think many of us have grown up with Christmas stories and traditions, and they're so beloved and so familiar to us that at times we forget the strangeness of them. Thinking about the visitation of the Magi in the Bible, Matthew doesn't record what they actually said as they presented their treasures. I did hear this one joke recently. What did the wise men say to Jesus? What? We brought gold and frankincense for you, Jesus. But wait, there's myrrh. (laughs) Yeah, it's... (laughs) Okay, so um, in all seriousness, um, Matthew doesn't give us much. I really hope... So Magi didn't say that, but um, it doesn't make sense. And anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't record Mary and Joseph's response or interpret the meaning of the treasures. But safe to say that collectively, the wise men and the gifts foreshadow the kingdom age when the wealth of the nations is brought to the Messiah. But there's not much here in that story for comment. And practically speaking, the gifts were probably sold to finance their upcoming sojourning in Egypt. But back to that third and last gift, myrrh. I mean, it's substance used for burial. According to our tradition, it foreshadows Christ's death. We take that for granted, yet it's strange, I think, to bring it to someone who's just beginning his life. Just think about it. Right in the front of his mother and earthly father. Now, where are their manners? It, sounds like, it seems like some kind of social faux pas. Sorry for another pun, but shouldn't we demur at the side of the myrrh? You know, just doesn't make sense to me. Now, we have two kids, and before they were born, we had parties where family and friends brought gifts. Apparently, the firstborn gets a baby shower, and then because there's a lot of hand-me-down clothes and gear, they get baby sprinkles, you know, and then second and third and on. And I'm just thinking, like, if you're the youngest in a big family, like, you get, like, a baby droplet. Like, what's left over for you? Anyways, just imagine you got people bringing these gifts, you know, gold worthy of a royalty. You know, oh, yes. Why, thank you. It looks heavy. You know, put it down right here. Incense, worthy of deity. Okay, that's a little exotic, but thanks. Right up here. Myrrh, to prepare the dead, embalm the corpse. Like, um, thanks. Like, I just got this baby. Not thinking about his death right now. But here we have it. Mary and Joseph are forced to consider the end of Jesus' life right near its start. Even before receiving this myrrh, Simeon told her, told Mary, that a sword will pierce through her soul. And I'm not trying to ruin the festive mood of Jesus' birthday. I say all this not only as a way of introduction to connect today's passage to the Christmas theme of today. It's not really forced at all to say Jesus was born to die. The cradle and the cross are inextricably linked. He took on flesh to have it torn and bleed. It's not odd to teach that Jesus was born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those under the law. But he had to be cursed according to that law by hanging on the tree. It's not weird of us to sing, nail, spear shall pierce him through. 
cross be born for me, for you. Right before we sing, Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. The passage like today's from 1 Corinthians 1 shouldn't seem so strange on Christmas Day. At least that's how I justify this. So as we are about to read verses 18 to 25, it would help to review verses 10 to 17. Paul began the body of this letter sounding the alarm on the problem of division at this church. He demands unity under Christ's authority. It's ridiculous to put mere human leaders upon pedestals in place of Jesus. And they, and we and all of us need to accept the limits of human ability. That means stop attributing the number of baptisms and growth of churches to charm, excellence of speech, or persuasive words of wisdom of mere human messengers. And Paul set the example of that. He did not boast in the number of baptisms he administered or some eloquence that he had. In fact, there was intentional minimizing of certain ministries and restraining of his abilities to keep the preaching of the gospel the main thing. To place the gospel front and center. That's why at the end of his argument in verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. With that statement, we arrive at the edge of today's great passage. So let me just read it now and then explain a bit further. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So just want to start right here with verse 18. Not only a bridge from the last passage, it presents the main idea of today's passage. Verse 18 flows naturally from verse 17. Grammatically speaking, that conjunction 4 at the beginning of verse 18 sort of explains what was said in verse 17. You could say that Paul is about to address the question, why is the wisdom of the world, I mean wisdom of words, in conflict with the preaching of the cross of Christ? Here's the answer. The ways of man and the ways of God are incompatible. They don't mix. Oil and water, heaven and earth. The thoughts of man versus the thoughts of God. Light versus darkness, truth versus lie, wisdom versus foolishness, power versus weakness, the aroma of death versus the aroma of life. So to the laws, preaching of the cross 
always crosses the line. It offends. It repulses. The gospel is an insult to our work righteousness and legalism. It's an affront to fleshly wisdom. So it's not a matter of perspective, just differences in taste, as if it's some kind of an acquired taste to believe in the gospel. Oh, unbeliever, give it a try. You might like it. You need to stop trying so hard to make his message palatable because if we're not careful, we're going to end up diluting the message. And looking back in our lives, and we actually do this in 1 Corinthians 1, it's only by God's grace that we believers are saved and are not perishing, that we see the message of the cross as it is truly, that we can say that it's a wondrous cross, right? That is the power of God and not foolishness. You know, that's to God alone be glory for our salvation. It's the goodness of the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has hidden truths from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. It's the will of the Son to reveal and make known the Father to us, to give life to whom he will. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, but we receive, who guides us into all truth. Grace is the only reason we're saved from our sins. We're being saved today as we grow in Christlikeness and saved tomorrow and for all eternity and someday completely free from sin and its influence. Without God's mercy, we'd be perishing in God's wrath forever, spending eternity in hell. So that's verse 18. Paul's thesis, I say, is the antithesis. After drawing the line in verse 18, the rest of the passage forks into two paths of argumentation. Argumentation. The first path starts with, I would say, verse eight, verse 19, with the scripture citation. And from there to verse 21, Paul extrapolates from a prophetic word spoken in Isaiah's time, a principle for the world at large. And then another argument, I think, begins in verse 22. Paul draws from his experience in the synagogues and the marketplaces, The apostle knows well how unbelievers react to evangelism. Jews one way, the Greeks another. Based on this division, I ask you to consider two principles for sharing the strange and wonderful good news of Jesus during the holidays and beyond. One, be assured of the futility of worldly wisdom. Be assured of the futility of worldly wisdom. That's verses 19 to 21. Two, proclaim the supremacy of Christ's power and wisdom. Proclaim the supremacy of Christ's power and wisdom. That's verses 22 to 25. First, be assured of the futility of worldly wisdom. I come from a culture that places high value in formal education. Hanging on our walls are framed diplomas and degree parchments. I want my kids to study hard. 
as a means to building a meaningful life. So am I a hypocrite here or contradicting myself as I say worldly wisdom is futile? futile. Now, of course, the type of wisdom condemned in today's passage is not wisdom per se, but specifically wisdom apart from God. There's plenty of that going around today. It's sad to see many of the prominent universities once had its roots in exalting God and his word. The ones that go back to Middle Ages exalted theology as the queen of sciences. Over time, the compromise of scriptures and acceptance of naturalistic worldviews led to major changes. Now they contradict their own models like Lord is my light, under God's sheep flourishes. While they try to be progressive, they're in fact in decline in God's eyes. And Paul has something to say about that, but it's nothing new. You know, Paul, the apostle opens up the scriptures to prove that the Lord's opposition to those who pride themselves in knowledge is nothing new. It goes back to ancient Israel. Specifically, Paul cites from a section of Isaiah where the prophet records six woes. The second of those woes is directed to Jerusalem of all places. The inhabitants have departed from God to the point where there's quite a serious disconnect. Towards the end of this woe, there's actually two verses that are especially relevant in the New Testament. First, Isaiah 29, 13 says, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. That might sound familiar. Jesus cited this verse to refute hypocrites who transgress the commandment of God for the sake of tradition. Religious authorities developed elaborate customs and traditions. They began revering those things more than God's word. Ironically, they became like the heathen they so abhorred, their own human wisdom became foremost. Paul knew this folly personally, as before his conversion, he too was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. So right after this indictment is the judgment in Isaiah 29, 14, which Paul cites here in 1 Corinthians with a slight variation. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. God shows himself to be God again. Make the wise look foolish. Teach the most learned a lesson in humility. Now, Paul, in his commentary of Isaiah, does a bit of trash talking on behalf of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Now, if we just stop here and the final word on the matter is that God made foolish the wisdom of the world, he'd be perfectly just and righteous, holy to do that. We'd be assured of the futility of worldly wisdom. If I was God, that's all I would do. Crush the know-it-alls and laugh at their perpetual shame and judgment day. But God being who he is, merciful, faithful, kind, didn't just leave us as we are. We go on to verse 21. It explains 
the futility of our wisdom, but it also shows an escape path out of our dead ends, according to God's wisdom. The worldly wise must first humbly realize that climbing up through institutions of higher learning does not get us to the door of heaven. Doctor of philosophy does not cure our sick souls. As Paul sums it up, the world through wisdom, that is its own wisdom, did not know God. And then to save us sinners, the Lord commands that we believe a message that's preposterous to unregenerate ears. It's a message of the king of kings taking the form of a bondservant. It's about the Lord of glory crucified in weakness. More on this message in a moment, but first let's just stop quickly for an application. So if we're assured of the futility of worldly wisdom, how does that affect the way we live today? Well, if we really believe that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, if we're truly convinced that God may foolish the wisdom of the world, we have to stop being scared of smart people. Now, here's what I mean. Like, you know, we're called to be more than conquerors. Yet we seem to cower or be intimidated as we talk to the lost about the gospel, as if they're going to outsmart us. We fear the sharp wits of the unsaved, as if they're going to eviscerate us, you know, make us look stupid, you know, make us look unprepared. Are we really you know, assured right, of the futility of worldly wisdom? You can rehearse the gospel presentation hundreds and thousands of times. And if you remain faithful to God and his word, just just accept that you'll never find acceptance with the world. I can't say this enough. I mean, there are some pre-evangelism things we do. I mean, speech seasoned with grace, maintaining good works that draws their eyes to us. But with evangelism itself, as you speak to the lost, you might as well, in their eyes, be selling dirt. They'll look at you like the way Achish looked at David and Agrippa and Festus looked at Paul. Look, you see, the man is insane. Lady, you're beside yourself. That's the natural response to the gospel of those who are perishing in sin. But our response to such rejection should be assurance, not despair. Go beyond that to confidence, I say. That the world and their wisdom will come to nothing. Bravely stand up as one church and witness of the gospel. Refuse to be terrified by our adversaries. Such courage, as it says in Philippians 1, will be both a great offense against them and an encouragement to us. Paul says in Philippians 1.28, such audacity will be a proof of their perdition, but to us of salvation and that from God. So if you ever feel as if you're not valiant, or as I do, or you don't have the heart of a lion, just remember that it's the Lord that they mock at their own peril. We only need to be witnesses, God does the saving and the judging, 
Just open your mouth and preach the gospel. And I hope that this illustration from Charles Spurgeon encourages you, and I think I may have shared this before, but I think it's worth repeating. It says, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they will not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that will be the best way of defending him, for he will take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think that's a good reminder and a segue as any to move on to the next part of the passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25. Let's consider how to proclaim the supremacy of Christ, power, and wisdom. Now, having spoken of the world in general, Paul proceeds to explain further the dissonance between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. It makes sense for the apostle to assess how the gospel was received by two people groups, Jews and non-Jews. Jesus and the early church went to Paul's people first, then the gospel, the good news spread to all the nations. That the Jews request a sign is no surprise as They constantly asked for them from Jesus, if you look at the Gospels. But our Lord knew, and now we know, that no matter how many signs are performed, they will not believe. They sought signs even as Christ hung on the cross. And as it applies to many of us today, the hunger and thirst for the wondrous and spectaculars never satisfy. All the while, the bread of life and the living water stays untouched, though they're within their reach by faith. Paul knew this problem personally as a zealous Jew himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, before he met the resurrected Christ. Now for the Greeks, and by Greeks, Paul simply referring to Gentiles of his day, the non-Jews of the Roman Empire who spoke Greek as their primary language, Even though Paul is a Jew from head to toe, he was born a Roman citizen. He was familiar with the Gentile culture. As he did in Athens, he could quickly and accurately evaluate the spiritual conditions of a heathen population. As we'll see later in 1 Corinthians, he could speak authoritatively on the unique challenges of being a Greek Christian because he's an effective apostle to the Gentiles. And part of that effectiveness was knowing how much they valued smart thinking and smart talking. But in either case, the Lord God in his wisdom did not give the Jews or the Greeks what they wanted, what they admired, 
what they idolized. He gave them what they needed. He did not tickle their fancy, capitulate to their demands. He charged the saints to proclaim the news of Christ crucified. Now imagine the reaction. The Jews would react What Christ crucified, not a heretic crucified, not a blasphemer crucified, Christ crucified. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, the son of man who sits on the right hand of the power of God, the king to be set on the Lord's holy hill of Zion. Yet the Jews are told he died rejected outside of Jerusalem. Even Peter, the best disciple of Jesus, couldn't stand the notion of Christ's suffering. Now, how about the Greeks? They'd react, what, Christ crucified? Even if their knowledge of the Messiah's obviously not as good as the Jews, maybe even superficial, they knew of the cross. The horrible, bloody, inhuman, inhumane torture device. How could they take seriously any leader facing such shame? Kings, rulers, and great ones are supposed to lord over others and exercise great authority over them. They're not supposed to be mocked wearing a crown of thorns. And then the cross itself. Cicero, the Roman statesman and philosopher, not too long before Jesus said the following, Let the very word cross be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. But here's the message. Here it is. Christ crucified, a curse in Jewish law, a taboo in Roman society, a scandal to Israel, madness to the Greeks. Yet it's at the center of God's redemption plan. To all those called to be saints, both Jews and Gentiles, reconciled to God in one body through the death of his son. Here's Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Even in Christ's humiliation, condemned as foolish and weak, he's mighty to save. While he's raised up as a spectacle to jeering crowds, he's lifted up to draw all people to himself. That's why we proclaim the supremacy of Christ's power and wisdom. As we sort of spoke of this morning and throughout, um, just let's challenge each other to seek opportunities to share this glorious gospel, encourage each other around the holidays, a lot of natural ways to talk about our beliefs. The good tidings of Christmas prepare us for Good Friday and Easter. And as we talk of birth of Jesus, let's talk about his death. See in the cradle and the cross how the weakness of God is stronger than men. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God and helpless babe. The Son of God through whom the world was made was born from the womb to be the Lord's servant. Jesus grew up to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Then he went to the cross to pay the penalty of sins that we've committed. 
He suffered for our evil thoughts, word, and deeds. Bitter envy, self-seeking in our hearts. He suffered for us lying against the truth. Earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom that we have. See, we professed to be wise, but we became fools. Making, we made idols of traditions, signs, and knowledge. Yet in love, Christ gave himself as a sacrifice that we might live. He was buried, rose again from the grave. On the third day, he proved himself to be alive for many days, never to die again. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. And this is the season to respond with faith. This is the time to get right with God. Don't delay. Apart from grace, we're perishing and we'll die in sin if we do not repent and believe in Jesus. Heed Paul's warning that you actually find later in the 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 21. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, similar to the argument we just saw. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Humble yourself before the Lord. Put your confidence in God only. Make that earlier song your Confession, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Surrender your pride, stop trusting in human strength and intellect. Place your hope of heaven in Jesus. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is the good news that our Lord has planned. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's why we can sing this final song. Stooping so low, but sinners raising. Heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising. All for love's sake becamest man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of the cross or that we celebrate and Lord, and as we think about this season, how it begins, how we remember the beginning of the earthly life of our Lord, Savior, Christ and how it ends and how it continues at the right hand of you, Father, and how it will even continue beyond that as he returns to establish the kingdom. Lord, we just humble ourselves before you. When we see that you are the God of humility, how can we dare to be proud? How can we dare to exalt ourselves and our wisdom and our strength before you and in the eyes of the world? May we proclaim your son uh, to the world, and help us to do it faithfully.
help us to realize that in all the wayward ways that uh, we see the world straying, being right in their own eyes, pray that they would see and help us, Lord, to uh, proclaim the message. Lord, just lead us to people, individuals who need to hear the word. We ask that you would use us, that we would proclaim, we would uh, speak the truth. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.